Welcome to Locally Sourced Joey, the podcast about anything and everything. Joined today by Larry J. Dunlap, author of the book Night People, part of the Things We Lost in the Night series. It's book one. There's another one on the way, but hey, book one's got plenty of greatness in it. Uh, it's a memoir of love and music in the 60s with Stark Naked and the Car Thieves. And it's a very entertaining read, very funny, a lot of great insights in there. And Larry has been generous enough to chat with us a little bit. So, Larry, thanks so much for joining the podcast. Hey, Joey, how are you? Good to hear from you. Um, full disclosure, I've only read the first chapter because it just uh, came to me yesterday. Um, yeah, you just got it, I think. Yeah, yeah and so, um, but really, I mean, I've really enjoyed it so far, and I look forward to diving into it. I, a lot more this weekend, and I know um, I'm also in the process of moving, so it'll be nice to take a break from packing and actually, you know, enjoy something for the weekend. Well, let's, let's, let's hope it works out that way. I, I will say, uh, if it helps, um, that the book starts off in a pretty small way, uh, you know, a pretty very linear story and pretty straightforward, but the threads tend to gather rather than ending. So as the book goes on, things that happen even in the first chapter are still relevant late in the book. And, you know, as the book steps along, um, I, I kind of feel that's how real life kind of works. Things don't just really end. They all, things just keep accreting, you know? Yeah, definitely. And when I... One thing I at least liked in the the early um, part of the book is um, when you were listening to music while doing your homework, because um, you know some people had told you that that helps with the homework, and I know I could I could at least empathize with that because uh, when I was growing up, I would come home and listen to I think this must have been like second grade, but so a little little younger than you were back here, but um, I would come home and listen to uh, the Dave Clark Five. We had a, a cassette tape of them, um, and so little, you know, eight-year-old me would would do his math homework and you know any English assignments or whatever, um, just listening to to the uh, the best of Dave Clark Five. Like yeah, so I, I I appreciated that um, you know it was while you were listening or while you were doing homework, you you hear um, the song "Silhouettes by the Rays," and that it sounds like that was kind of what you know the first trigger of hey, you know, I'd like to be a part of a band yeah it, well it was I never really had any intention of ever being part of a band but uh, my only you know I I liked earlier music but I didn't really I didn't have any involvement with it just like most people it was music and that was kind of cool I was a young enough guy to appreciate females and uh, and not understand at all what it was about really and you know, when I go to a party and hear the music, it would, I'd sort of relate to the girls, but not know exactly what I was thinking. You know, mm-hmm. um, but at that particular point, what happened was, is I realized I liked that in some different way, and wanted to sing it. I didn't want to sing the lead; I just wanted to sing the song. I didn't even really know what singing the lead meant. So, uh, so it was like just really important that I figured out how to sing that song. And it was all about vocals. It wasn't about music. It was about, it was just the way this, the, the voices sounded to me was so, uh, so amazing. And I just wanted to be able to do that. Very cool. Very cool. Um, and 
I mean, that's, I think, at its core, what music is all about is just being, you know, it moves you so much that you, you feel the need, like, I need to emulate this to, yeah, to like move yeah, forward. That's yeah, exactly what happened. I, I, I was really into basketball and kind of a jock and, uh, and a smart ass, basically. <laughs> 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 um, but I really wanted badly to, to play basketball and, uh, and I was reading a lot, but I really had no interest in music until that point, certainly in getting involved in it. I mean, my, my mother, uh, sorely disappointed in the fact that she got me piano lessons because she thought I should, you know, be some kind of a gentleman. And <laughs> that failed miserably. <laughs> but at that particular point, everything changed. And uh, really, a lot of things, my, my life changed. And I think I have kind of an obsessive personality because, uh, you know, I get passionate or involved in something like that. All of a sudden, I'm... Uh, I'm off and running with it, and, and something else falls off the wagon, kind of. So that's what happened at that point, yeah. And that's that's kind of the inciting moment uh, for the for the book in terms of the music part of it. Very cool. And on a side note, do you still uh, get to keep up with basketball at all? Oh yeah. Excellent. Yeah, I I, uh, I I have been particularly interested in the Golden State Warriors, and not just because they're front runners, but um, well, I went to Butler, and Butler played, uh, oh, I can't think of the name, but, but the school that uh, Steph... Uh, Davidson. That they, they played on the same conference that Butler played, and I got to see him all four years while he was in college. And, uh, because I would follow my alma mater's games in college, so it was kind of neat to see him land in California. Yeah, very... Cool. And yeah, those Warriors teams, just the past few years, and even, I mean, honestly, even going back to the, the 90s, I think we're just very, they've always been entertaining teams, and now it's nice to see that they're they're also a winning team, as opposed to just fun to watch. And it's good to see little guys do well. <laughs> Being a little guy, I really like them when the little guys do well. Yeah. <laughs> when the Hobbits win. Exactly. It makes, yeah, it makes... Most of us who aren't seven feet tall, you know, feel feel good like we can accomplish that too. Yeah, when Shaq, even though the Shaq played here in uh, in L.A., he was uh, he was a uh, MVP. Well, my God, shouldn't he be? He's a giant. I mean, <laughs> it, it, how challenging is that to be seven two and weigh about a million pounds? <laughs> yeah, it must be nice to just build a career out of using your butt to get people out of the way. <laughs> easily scoring. Um, well, is there something uh, something else I can tell you about the book? I can tell you, I guess, uh, that the, the book moves in kind of a lot of different ways. Um, but primarily, it's like it, it's about it's about the band, it's about music, and then it's my personal story too. Um, and the first part of the book has a lot to do with uh, this marriage that's on the rocks that you can tell there is starting to starting to go bad. And it's it's really kind of interesting because just a few just a few days ago, uh, I went to visit my second son Dan, 
And when when did you decide that you, you know, wanted to to chronicle this all in a book? You know, I think it probably started about the first time that our band got together for a reunion. We were all really close, um, particularly the four of us who kind of featured in this book were from the Midwest. Uh, and when we would get together, we'd have all these uh, reminiscences. We would talk about everything, and, and in, inevitably, somebody would turn to me because I was the big reader in the group. I was the big nerd and carried around books on my steamer trunks. And, and uh, they'd say, "You know, Larry, you've got to write about this." Say, yeah, sure, right. <laughs> <laughs> like uh, that would ever happen. But uh, as as time went by, and I, I I have been writing for some time prior to this. Um, as a professional writer, as a technical writer, I was looking forward to the time when I could write what I wanted to write. And I had three or four projects that I was interested in, but it seemed like this one was the one that sort of had to be done first. It had to be, because I didn't expect this to take five years, so I thought I'd do it in a year, you know, maybe. Mm -hmm. I didn't realize how much I had to learn. Um, and when you get started on something like this, even though memoir is a matter of what you remember, you still want to base it in fact to, to the degree that you can. So it was an awful lot of research. It was months and months of research before I wrote a word, really. And uh, even though I knew all that stuff, you know, I had told When I left the group, I also became the manager of the group for a while. Uh, and I, so I had all the paperwork. I had the contracts and where we were and when we were there, you know. Uh, but also, there was all the things in Variety and Billboard and various magazines that in areas we played and you know, some local, uh, some national. So I had a way to kind of track um, what, where, where everything was going on, and then sort of that laid over a historical view of all the things that were happening in the 60s. It all became this kind of layered layered look at those six years. And so then when it was broken up into chapters, um, I had a pretty good idea how to write it, but it, it probably, honestly, it probably took, I want to say it took over a year to get to the point where I could see it that clearly. Um, but I just felt like that, you know, we all say this, you know, we're all in our 70s. And uh, I forget who it was, but one of, one of the guys said to me, you know, it's like, you know, whenever you call or any of the rest of us call, we never know if it's a phone call. Mm. You know? yeah. And 
I said, well, you know, I better write this then. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that's the thing that, and there were some other things too. Um, I think probably the most interesting one is that I had a high school friend who is very familiar with some of the, uh, uh, during the book it'll flash back to some of the earlier salient points about my life that kind of led to all this. And um, his name was John, and I, I had lost track of him. And uh, just before I was starting the book or thinking about it, I, re- I ran across him when I was back visiting family in Indianapolis. And uh, it was uh, Christmas, and I was at his house, and I said, you know, I'm thinking about writing this this memoir of this six years after I left Indianapolis. What, what do you think about that? Would you be interested in that? And he said, well, I don't think I particularly would. And I always kind of told my kids it was uh, it was kind of a warning to what happened to you if you if you ran off and got off the track somehow. They, they had to be careful about what happened to you happening to them. And I said, really? Because <laughs> <laughs> I thought it, you know it was something else, you know. And I thought about it and I realized that uh, you know every good story has a cautionary tale, you know, somewhere at the bottom of it. And I thought, well, that probably means I actually have a good story. I should probably tell it. Yeah. Yeah, if you can educate someone, then why not? <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, to to me, it's a memory. And, uh, I mean, uh, to me, it was a big adventure. And some, some bad things happened to us, and some good things happened to us, and I thought more good than bad. And, you know, the word adventure implies that bad things can happen as well as good ones. Um, and, you know, and, and you take your lumps when you're out taking chances. But to me, it was all really positive. I always thought about it as, as really positive. And you know, I've had a few people read it and say, oh, guys, you, you guys had a really a really tough time. Everything, Nobody really gave you the break you should have gotten. And I was like, people don't give you breaks. They really don't. You're, you know, you, you really have to work hard at it and, and get yourself in the right positions, uh, particularly in music and, any, and really anything that, that takes... Uh, I think a creative, a creative way of doing things that you have to put yourself in the way of breaks that don't really come to you. I like that. Yeah, put yourself in the way of breaks, and that actually segues very nicely because as someone who has uh, played, you know, some local shows around Austin too, I'm a, I'm a big fan of sort of uh, the horror stories of like a you know a worst gig you've ever had. Um, <laughs> so I'd love to hear what what you've personally felt is. The you know the worst show you were ever a part of. Well, I think it was. <laughs> so I, I, I'm going to try to keep this from being a long story, but we played in Las Vegas, and uh, we played. We were we, we we first played on the strip in a club called the Pussy Catagoga, which was a rock club, and it was the, really nobody allowed rock play in the hotels. There wasn't any rock music in the hotels. Not in the 60s. And um, we played with uh, the Union Gap and uh, Paul Revere and uh, uh, Sly Stone and all these people who are really well-known acts at the Pussycat. And we were kind of lucky and caught caught on a lot there in town and became almost really a local band in Las Vegas. So we got to be friends with the sheriff's youngest brother. Now, 
the sheriff was Ralph Lamb, and if you saw that series, Las Vegas, that featured Ralph Lamb. I don't know that recent series. Do you okay. remember that? Yeah, yeah, I think so. The, the main character was Ralph Lamb. Okay. Um, who was the sheriff of Clark County, where Las Vegas is located, of course. Uh, and his youngest brother was named Larry Lamb, and he was crazy as they came, but for somehow he really latched onto our group. And uh, he and his friends, well, in fact, I think, you know, later he was involved in killing a guy and all sorts of stuff, but back when we knew him, the worst thing he had done was go to Caesar's Palace and fill up the fountains with soap powders, and it was studs <laughs> all over Las Vegas, the Las Vegas Strip from the, from the fountains there. Um, which the guys that owned the Caesar's Palace weren't too crazy about. <laughs> <laughs> but he and some friends decided to buy this kind of rundown restaurant on the strip about a block away from the Pussycat. And they kind of strong-armed us into having to come play there. And they were supposed to fix the place up and have it all ready for us. And they, and they paid us a lot of money, which, you know, that was good, but wasn't something we really wanted to do because we were trying to get into the hotels. We'd already, uh, that's another story, but you'll read about it. We, <laughs> had, we somehow accidentally, in some way that we have no idea how it happened, actually played at Caesar's Palace. <laughs> uh, just shortly after it opened. And we, it was, that's, it, it, you'll just really have to read about that because it's just, it's really hard for me to explain in a short view. You sort of have to see how that leads up and happens. But we were we were not welcome to come back. I can leave it like that. <laughs> not that not that we did poorly because we didn't. But we were hired and then told we couldn't actually do rock and roll. They said, you know, you guys because we were a vocal group, as you can tell that we were we were singers, not musicians initially. <laughs> so we were more like the Beach Boys of the Four Seasons. Association or those kind of bands. Sure. And so they said you have to, you have to only play your your ballads and things. And for reasons that once again you'll see in the book, we just couldn't do it after a while. <laughs> and we sort of let loose. And the crowd left it, and the place was full. But I guess it wasn't full of the kind of people they wanted because we were sort of no longer allowed in the hotel, basically. Hmm. Um, but we wanted to get back to that because it was you know you played for huge crowds of celebrities and things. And uh, so Larry kind of threatened us that he, you know, he'd kind of make sure nothing worked out for us if we didn't come and open his new club because he thought we were responsible for the Pussycat doing so well. Um, and uh, he actually did a terrible job of getting the place ready. The PA was horrible. The room was horrible. It did no marketing. It was just horrid. Um, by this time, of course, we smoked a lot of uh, loco weed, <laughs> and we met a couple of really interesting characters there. Um, one old black guy who, who, I guess he was a dancer from long ago. He would come out on the dance floor and just kind of glide around the dance floor. He followed us up to our dressing room, and uh, one of the guys offered him a smoke. And he took an entire lid of brass and poured it into a brown paper bag and wrapped it up into a cigar and smoked the whole thing right in front of us. And even though it was 
all the grants we had, it was just so interesting to watch him <laughs> do that. We just sat and watched him, you know. Uh, but nobody showed up, and it was just a, a really horrible four weeks. So I think that would be probably the worst engagement we ever had because we kind of figured we ruined ourselves in Las Vegas after that. Yeah, I'd say that's a that that qualifies as a as a worst worst time yeah, for I sure. Yeah, you know, I think you know people, people may have you know some dangerous things. I think well, that does you'll get to that fairly quickly. We when we first got started was in the East Bay of San Francisco, mm-hmm. and the first club was in a little a little town called Hayward. It's not that Hayward isn't so little now, but it's not far from Oakland, just south of Oakland. And um, it was right between a, a barrio where a lot of Mexicans lived and a doggy diner, which was kind of the headquarters for the Bay Area, um, the motorcycle gang, the, uh, who am I thinking of here? The Hells Angels. Oh, yeah, yeah. So what would happen is, is that both of them would come in and kind of eye each other uneasily, but on the 1st and 15th, when the, the, the checks came out from the government, there would be more Mexicans in there, and they would fight. One night, they fought so much, and it was so bad, that by the time the police got there and they got everybody out of there, um, there was a, nobody died, but I don't know why. And they had to actually close the club so they could sand the dance floor because of all the blood on the and soaked into the to the wood. Wow. And uh, we were on stage and we were told just keep playing, just keep playing, <laughs> no matter what place. We played for like an hour and a half. I sure wasn't an hour and a half. Felt like it though. <laughs> it sounds a little weird. distracting though. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that was uh, that was a weird night. But, um, anyway, that, that when you're coming up and you're in the in those dive bars along uh, along the bay, <laughs> but it, that was that was good for us actually in the end. Yeah, and it builds it builds character if nothing else, right? It, that's kind of true because to we were a sixties group because as I said we were. Eventually, we became the model for Three Dog Night. So, we had three lead singers. Mm-hmm. Being a vocal group, as I say, you know, one of the guys um, who you've already met there, named Les, guitar player, he's the only guy that, that played an instrument. So the other three of us were kind of the lead singers up front, and then we we got involved, got a, a we found a bass player and a and a drummer. And that was enough that we could get started. So we basically had three, three singers and three musicians, and one of the musicians sang. So we were a big group, and that meant six people getting paid in these places that were used to playing paying trios and quartets. So to make enough money, we had to work essentially two jobs, and that that involved on Friday and Saturday nights. Once your normal hours were over at two o'clock, then we had to go play in after hours. We played that till six, and then we came back to our home club again and played a jazz or a jam session. It, it, it was thirteen hours a night, two nights in a row, and we did that for several months. And 
of uppers and downers to kind of make all that work. But um, the thing I always thought about that is that we learned a lot about each other. We learned a lot about what being a professional musician meant. And we learned that that thing about that you always have to go on, the show has to go on thing, is real. Amazing. God, 13. Really, that was, yeah, that was quite a, that was really quite an experience. It was a crucible, but we learned it, you know. Yeah. In fact, the chapter that's about is called The Pharmacist and the Nurse, because this this person appoints appointed him as himself essentially to be our uh, ad hoc pharmacist and work <laughs> out the levels of pills that we needed to take to be able to stay up long enough and to, to, to do all this so that we literally could go to work on Friday night and not get to sleep until Monday morning. Wow. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty intense. Yeah. Just a little bit. Sounds, sounds like it. Um, <laughs> Well, what... yeah, it was a, yeah, it was about that was a, that was close to four months of that. Oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> no one can ever say that musicians don't work hard. Ah, uh, is that? Yeah, but you know, it, what, it, I think the only the only thing I I know from my point of view, I had never intended to do that. <laughs> I, I I wanted to sing. I wanted to sing with my. With my friends, and I liked it when we sang in the studio. We were lucky and had a hit real early when we were in Indianapolis. That, that was, it didn't turn out to be what it was supposed to be because the, the master of the record got lost before they could press enough records. So we kind of lost that, but we were holding off the Beatles for a while in 1964. Hmm. Uh, so we, we had a taste of that. And I just like the sound of voices. I mean, I just like the, that idea. And I don't know how, I, I mean, I, I still look at this and I, uh, it, it sounds odd to say, I don't know how I got into a band or became part of a band because it really wasn't, that was no goal in my life ever. Um, but what was a goal was to stay with my friends and, and, to, and to keep that independent sense of creative freedom that came along with that. And um, and to not have to leave California, <laughs> I always thought I'd have to go back to Indiana if it didn't work out. You know? Yeah, well, I'm glad you I uh, got to stay in California and enjoy your your uh, what like 70 degree winters. I guess it is there. Yeah, I never went home. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean I went home to visit, of course, and and had you know adventures in that sense. But as far as moving back to Indiana, that was never. I really, I mean, I, I, and I see it clearly in the book. I, the minute I got off the airplane in um, San Francisco, actually in Oakland, and looked at what was going on around me, and it was spring, and back home it was correct, there was still snow on the ground, and there it was like, well, you know, high 70s, and 6 or 7 o'clock at the night, when I, the night when I got off the airplane, and I said, I am never going home. This is where I was supposed to be. Been wrong that I wasn't here all along. Uh, yeah, I I grew up in Chicago, and so I oh. I feel the winter pain that from growing up well, with that. But you're you're real familiar with WLS, except I don't think WLS is a big station anymore. When you were there, 
considerably older, but WLS was a huge station at one time. Yeah. I am familiar with it. I don't... Yeah, I don't think it was... I don't even think they were playing rock by the time you were... But there was yeah. a time when it was the third... It was the third most powerful radio station in the United States. Yeah. When I first put up... It was the third 50,000 watt tower they put up there. And uh, and that's... We did this homemade record in, in, in Indianapolis, and somehow it started getting played on WLS. <laughs> and... Uh, it started going up the top 40 charts. They were playing it hour by hour. And uh, we went on the charts. One week behind us, I Want to Hold Your Hand came onto the charts from the Beatles. And we stayed in front of them for three weeks until somebody found out that the record stores had been sold out of records from the day it first went on sale and couldn't get anymore. Mm. So the radio station dropped us off the charts after that. That's my Chicago story. We, you know, Indianapolis isn't as far away, so yeah. we went up there to, to, to do sock hops and go with the disc jockeys around to do uh, um, little personals, you know, where you go and, and mimic the record, basically, that kind of stuff. Yeah. And car service and take them to restaurants, and we were like big stars in Chicago. They never played our record in Indianapolis, so we'd come home and it was like, oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, Chicago's fun to hang out in, so that's not, that doesn't sound too bad. <laughs> yeah, my niece still lives there. Very cool. I, I mean, I, if I could live there from, like, March to October, I would be yeah. set with yeah. that. But those those four winter months that sometimes extend to, like, eight winter months are not... Or eight-month winters, I guess. Not eight winters. That would be a lot. Uh, but I I do like to, uh, to wrap up with a top three... Um, so I'd love to hear who your top three favorite bands that you never performed with are. Well, let's see. Uh, for me, I'm going to you know, look back in time a little bit, but I think uh, the Mamas and Papas were always my favorite group. Um, obviously a local group, right? Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and I know that we... Um, I'm not sure I'm going to say they're my favorite band, but they're the band that we sounded the most like because Dave has such a, this brilliant falsetto. That was the Four Seasons, so you know, that's back in the day. Um, I, and, and unfortunately, we played with Sly Stone, but I thought he was fantastic. Uh, the third favorite band that I have is a band that you're not going to know, but I uh, Nevertheless, they were they were my second favorite band that I have ever seen live. Um, they were actually a house band on the Andy Williams television show, which was a big deal a long time ago. The name of the band was Sod Seed and Butcher Company, hmm. and uh, I still know a couple of guys in that band. I've kind of stayed in touch with them, and they were they were just a killer band. Very cool. I mean, I'm excited to check them out. Do you have a Do you have a song recommendation? I, you know, I don't know uh, if you can find. I should ask uh, the drummer Larry Devers. I'm in touch with him all the time. I should ask him if he's got any of their any of their records around or if it can be found on Amazon or anything like that. Sure. Yeah. That'd I'll be do that. nice. 
Always, yeah, always excited to learn new music. I feel like sometimes I, I grew up like 20 to 30 years too late um, musically. But Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you, a band that, you know, after I left uh, playing, I, was, I worked in, uh, in Hollywood for about nine years as a personal manager and owned recording studio and stuff. Um, there's this one band that may be one of the best bands that I, I was ever involved with that I ever heard uh, in the studio. Their album, Counter Spies, is just a fantastic record even these days. And I can't say that I'm exactly in touch with all of them, but I'm in touch with a, I'm in touch with a couple of guys who are still in touch with a couple of them. M- many of them went on to play with uh, the Righteous Brothers. Oh. Bill Medley. Cool. Very cool. So I could send you a link to that, I think. Yeah, sure. Send, yeah, send as many links as you'd like. I always, I always. Can I send more. you? A, can I send you a little card that said songs from the book? Um, I believe so. Yeah, I think I saw. So on the back there. of that is a URL, and it will, you know, let you download. Um, their MP3s, but the MP3s that are from the book, from the songs that are mentioned in the book, 11 songs. Awesome. And is that in, uh, typically included with every copy, or is that kind of a, a special thing? No, it's not. It's a special thing at the moment. Very cool. Um, you can actually get, get those songs directly on the site, but you can't download them. Um, and they're available to play on the site. The problem mm-hmm. kind of is that even though I'm on all those records, I don't really have the rights to do anything with them. Yeah. I don't think anybody will say anything because I'm giving them away, but you know, I could sell them or anything like that. You know? mm-hmm. So, yeah, I got involved in looking at the research that because, uh, that because I thought, you know, it would be really cool as a companion piece to, to have a, an album to go along with a book. Yeah. Uh, and, and I started checking lawyer friends and then online lawyers' sites, and I was putting hours into this, and everybody was explaining to me that every time, every time, you know, as I say, I had a recording studio, was in the business, and even I didn't know this, but every single time that a song is recorded, it creates a brand new copyright. It's a performance copyright, hmm. and it's the actual piece of music, that slice in time that can be imprinted on a music, I'm sorry, on a record or on a DVD or you know, in memory in some way, or digitally reproduced, or whatever it is, it's that, it's that moment in time when that record was played and, and frozen, if you, if you want to look at it that way. So, you know, some of these copyrights that are, and the, the copyrights for these were some of them 50 years old, and trying to trace them back and figure them out, especially in that little, that little label in Indiana, I have no idea who owns the rights to that. Uh, so it became, you can either write a book or you can research uh, trying to put out this album. And I thought, no, I'll write the book. <laughs> well, it's, I mean, even just from my limited reading of it, it's very entertaining so far. So I think you made the right choice. <laughs> well, thanks. Uh, this is the first book of two. And, uh, and, and although I wrote them, I wrote the entire thing at the same time, I didn't realize when I split the book that where I split it, the book um, does change tone because the first book is about 
trying to become a band, trying to become a successful group, trying to, to find personal happiness like that. And the second book is about plateauing and finding a certain amount of professional success and, uh, and personal success and then trying to hold on to it. Interesting. Do you have a timeline for the second book? Yeah, because as I say, it's, it's essentially done. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm going to have to do some work on it. I, I like to think that I'm a better writer than I'm <laughs> I can improve it. Plus, I, I kind of, let me just say that it will be a chore to finish the last chapter. Even though I've finished it, I have so many alternate versions of it because it really ties together the entire story from book one, actually from chapter one right through. Hmm. And um, uh, I hate people who write books and don't know what the ending is, don't know, don't give you a satisfying ending. Yeah. I mean, in life, you know, with a memoir or whatever, you, you know, there's, there's no, there isn't this perfect ending, this perfect um, everything resolved. But there has to be a real sense of closure, you know, and what was... What, kind of what was learned, uh, what was lost, what was gained, what was, you know, what it was all about, what it all meant in the end, you know. And, uh, and I put an awful lot of thought into that. So that will still, that's still awaiting a final, final chapter there. And the, also the connection, the connection between the books. Um, they, they just flowed together before, and now I really want to do a few things with beginning of the, of the next book to resonate, to almost overlap with the first book, mm-hmm. so that you can read the second book, and even if you haven't read the first book, you're, you're kind of still already in it by the time the, the narrative really takes off. Sure. And, um, but it, it feels really good to know that essentially the book is written. So I'm, ex- I'm, I'm, I'm going to go back to it full time on September 1st. And if I can keep myself away from it that long, because I'm really busy with book promotion now, mm-hmm. and then go really, really hit it then, and I'm looking for it to be published early next year. Great. We'll keep uh, keep our eyes open for it for sure. Oh, uh, I you're on my mailing list as much as I'm on yours. Awesome. So yeah, yeah. I mean, if there if if there's anything that you want or need or uh, whatever, feel free to call. Absolutely, I appreciate that for sure. I know I'm I'm very uh, you know very vaguely working on on a book right now, um, so I may be maybe asking you for you know recommendations or pointers or something like that along the line. So absolutely, I spent a lot of time doing that in the uh, in my writing groups here. Awesome. I think the biggest thing I would say to people is, like, no wine before it's time. Mm-hmm. No book for it before it's done. I think the biggest thing that happens with people is they they, they publish a book before it's finished, you know, particularly in self-publishing, that there's a lot of really good books that are not good because they were never really finished. Yeah. And that's really hard to do because if you're in writing groups or you're working with other people or other writers and you see them publish and you see, you know, all that sort of going on and you, you, you feel like you've got your story, but there's so much to it. You say, there's got to be a great story and you've got you've to tell a great story, but then you 
really got to have a skill set. Um, you've really got to hone your skill set so that your story can resonate. And, and honestly, even though I, I was writing about probably for, for 20 years, I, most of the work I did involved writing. Uh, even though a lot of it was in the game business, I still had to write all the, even, even laying out the code, you know? So, mm-hmm. so uh, the process of creative writing is, uh, it's, it's part art and part science. And I think a lot of people think they can live just on the art part. Mm-hmm. And that's not true. Most of it is skill. I like that. Definitely very helpful. And that's well. I wish you luck on the on your book. Uh, what are you gonna write about? Do you think? Um, well, I've actually got a couple different um, ideas going. One is more of a. I hate saying it because it sounds so cliched, but a sort of a coming of age. Um, I, my my best comparison is Catcher in the Rye, but more twenty first century. Um, and there's, there is, you know, coming of age always works. Yeah. That's not, that's not trite at all. Well, that's good to hear then. Um, and I also, I, back when I, when I lived in LA, um, this, this would probably be more of like a, an ebook cause I just don't know if there's enough content for it. But, um, when I, I rode, I, I didn't have a car when I lived out in LA, which as you know, is probably oh. not the wisest idea. Um, but you know, it's a, really hard to live here without a car. Yeah, a fresh, you know, as a fresh, uh, you know, recently out of college, uh, you know, I was like, oh, I could, like, walk to places and, like, public transit won't be so bad. And again, being from Chicago, you kind of grow yeah. up with, with great transportation. No L here. Yeah, there's no, no L. Although I, I hear the uh, the uh, metro, I guess, is kind of the developed a little bit. you got to live in the path of it. I mean, it helps to spread out. It yeah. That's true, <laughs> but um, but yeah. So I have a I have a lot of great um, just stories from riding the bus, um, and just you know like oh. crazy characters I met um, and witnessed from afar, and sometimes would interact with. Uh, and so I wanted to uh, I like that at, yeah at least write something kind of like that. I don't know if I'd have to you know, get them to sign off on it, but I know, you know, I wouldn't use any, any real names or anything. Oftentimes, because I didn't actually know their names, but I... Well, yeah, and the second part of this is that if you write that as a memoir, um, you get a lot more latitude. Mm-hmm. Okay. You know, it can be a, it can be a memoir if you, if you choose to do it that way, and then it's more, it's, it's more about what you remember. Um, yeah, I think you could write that. It'd be, it'd be great. Oh. But you know, the, you know, I was glad you didn't tell me it was vampires or <laughs> or, or a dystopian world. I am so tired of dystopian worlds. Yeah, none of none of that. Um, just doesn't. Yeah, not not something I'm super interested in. And and like yeah. you said, it's just it's been done to death. And Harry yeah. Potter meets the Hunger Games or something. Yeah. <laughs> That's for that's for next year. That's my project. Once people are have forgotten about the the wave of them, bring it back, right? <laughs> yeah, there's got to be. I mean, you know, I probably there's there's probably things off the Harry Potter thing that can be done, but the dystopian worlds are just oh my god, you know. Yeah. Ugh. <laughs> it's just be depressing to read. It's like, <laughs> you know, write about some 
somebody who saved the world. You know? I'm not somebody who's a, an Elon Musk or somebody, some brilliant scientist that solves all the problems. Yeah. I know, yeah, keep it positive for once. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, like, yeah, these, these great challenges, but uh, we really rise to them, you know. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> Anyway, I hope you like the book. Um, I, I, uh, it was such a relief to finish it at first that I didn't really have a chance to enjoy it until well after it got published, and then when I could actually sit down and read it for about the billionth time, <laughs> but then have enough distance and objectivity to to feel good about it. And it's kind of good. The guys and most of the guys in the band um, have really loved it. And it followed along with it while it was going. I mean, and believe me, it's not a, it's not a puff piece. It's not, you know, that they're, everybody gets their moment in the washer, you know. Mm -hmm. But it's, uh, I think, it, I think it's more of a hopeful story than, you know, about, about going out and, and actually coming of age, and, and, but actually the adventure of young men. I, I always felt that it could have been on a boat. It could have been somebody could have been a group of guys who had to sort of figure things out while they were on a boat or figure things out while they were uh, on some adventure to another world or whatever. It's it's not really so much that it has to be the music business. It, I, I think that adds a particular um, charm to it because music is such, music is in our souls. And uh, when you deal with it on a day-to-day -day basis, it's, it's almost like, it's almost like being involved in a drug culture where you're you're kind of a enabler to people who need music in their lives. We, we found that in clubs a lot, where people were they just had to have that be infused with music, you know. Um, but on the other hand, I just think that those kinds of stories, you know, those adventures that some friends take, some people that maybe didn't even really know that much about each other but who are forced into such close proximity that they have to learn about each other and how to deal and live with each other and be dependent upon each other. But that's always a cool story. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, well, all right. I, that's, I'm sure that you, you said you had something you had to do at 2 o'clock, so we probably uh, used up our time. Yeah, that was actually perfect timing. <laughs> Well done. Well done all around. <laughs> no, but Larry, I really do appreciate you taking the time to chat and looking forward to checking out the rest of the book, writing about it, and I, I will give you a shout if if I need anything else for this or just any you know, any other thoughts on, on writing in general. Yeah, feel free to contact me, uh, you know, if there's anything you need, anything you want, uh, I'm happy to get it for you. Um, you know, I have something that eventually I can use as an editorial review on my Amazon page, um, that would be really nice. Sure, definitely, and, yeah. Uh, and um, onward and upward, I will say that for the next week, the ebook is on sale for $2.99. I'm doing, with the promotional people I'm working with, it's kind of a, an event for this upcoming week, so if there's, if you want to let your readers know, or if you want to tell anybody, if, you know, as you're getting involved with the book, the ebook is about 60% off for a week. Oh, very cool. Yeah, I'll definitely post that. Well, outstanding. 
Awesome. Well, thanks again, Larry, and enjoy uh, your weekend and the rest of the ideally perfect weather in, in Southern California. Yeah, it's ridiculous. I feel bad when I talk to my friends back east. <laughs> <laughs> no, don't feel bad. You got to milk it. I think it's really interesting that we had a lot of have we have a lot of similar geographical locations that we know. Yeah. And we've both chosen the heat over the cold, which I think is a wise choice. Yeah, that's true. All right, Joey. Well, uh, best of luck with your with your blog and with your book, and um, and stay cool. Thank you, Larry. You as well. All right, Jerry. All right, take care. Bye. Thanks for listening. And remember, what do you call a can opener that doesn't work? A can't opener. Get after it today, people.